0: Perfection's sort of, it's unattainable. Um, I think Vince Lombardi
1: said, but if you chase perfection, you catch excellence. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Armago podcast. It's myself, Mark Bushby, and I'm joined today by Angus Stroddock, who will be co-hosting the podcast. It's quite remarkable to think that the podcast has been going now for over a year. Uh, and seeing all the athletes that we've had on the podcast now competing in the Olympics is truly incredible. And also seeing some going on to do the pre- presenting as well at the Olympics. Um, is just amazing to, um, to see them progress and see where they're at now, having spoken with them uh, a year ago. Now, today we're joined by Will Greenwood, MBE. Now, Will competed in three Lions tours, um, he, he, the first of which uh, he went in as an uncapped England rugby player. Um, And in their first Lions tour, he swallowed his tongue and stopped breathing for several minutes. He also went on to win the Rugby World Cup, where he finished as the tournament's top try scorer Um, And he scored 55 caps for England in his time um, with the squad. But he's more than just a rugby player. He's now a Sky Sports presenter, an ITV match analyst. He writes articles for the Daily Telegraph. And he's a brilliant, fantastic, funny bloke. Now what stood out in this episode was just how hard he works and how he's always willing to try and find a way through to make things work. He talks about his book that's coming out soon where he talks about how we should be looking to team well as opposed to just leading well um, and how we can be looking to improve in this in our daily lives. Now of course at the end of each episode, as you'll know if you've been listening to the Armigo podcast for a while now, that we have a two truths and one lie with our guests. And at the end of season three, a little while ago now, we had Monica Aksumit, um and her uh, correct lie was that she is not fluent in Polish, Spanish, and English. Now, as I say, this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Will Greenwood, MBE. You're going to love this one. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the Armago podcast. Obviously, a massive pleasure to have you. Um, you know, the first area I kind of want to start with uh, with this is um, your childhood and, and what kind of led you uh, to where you, where you are now, and any of the kind of key moments that define that.
0: Uh, you look. I got brought up in a, a dual nationality in a way. Before I could remember how old I was, we jumped on a plane and went to Rome. Uh, it was supposed to be for a year. My dad uh, was playing rugby. Uh, and had a job as a wine trader and my mum was a school teacher so we went to Rome for a year and stayed for six so where England originally played their six nations games in Italy was Stadio Flaminio before they moved to Stadio Olimpico and uh, Stadio Flaminio was my playground so I just would run up and down those very steep sided steps and have a great time, hang around with a lot of the sort of Italian rugby players and then a couple of expats who are out there like uh, Andy Hayden, uh, Brown was out there for a while. Obviously, my old man, Ian Robertson, some great old names who, when Italian rugby first tried to kick off, needed some impetus from some sort of foreign superstars to go and be player coaches. Uh, I came back as a six year old to a little village just outside Blackburn called Hurst Green, associated with the school called Stonyhurst, where my mum taught, uh, that had three lads sort of on the field. On the 22nd of November 2003, Ian Balshaw finished the game. Uh, I finished the game uh, and Kieran Bracken was on the bench. So it was amazing to have three lads from my little village uh, who were involved in the World Cup final. And so my village involved just where I lived on Smithy Row, outside the front door, front of the house was the footy pitch, outside the back door was the cricket pitch and uh, just outside all day. Chasing the ball with Adam Hayhurst, Paul Hayhurst, Simon Foster, the youngs, Ian Barton, the um, whole host of uh, young fellas who didn't really want to have a growth mindset, just wanted to boot a ball about, and so that's that's what I did. And uh, rugby was just one of the sports I enjoyed playing. I never I never specialised in it. I didn't play for England schools. Um, I just kept turning up and uh, and having a good time, and it was sort of at the age. 21 22 where I st- the the skinny tall kid with the big nose so suddenly people started saying well he can he can play a bit um but it was it was that late i certainly wasn't in an academy they didn't have academies mm. i wasn't picked up as a 13 year old future star it was um a, a much more much more of a loop big big sort of strange loop that finally got me to England
1: yeah it's you know it's has changed a huge amount since uh what it was then and, and what it is now uh, you mentioned the, the growth mindset sort of thing, and it's obviously something that's you know fairly well talked about now. Is that something that kind of developed over time or is that something you felt you had from quite a young age?
0: Uh, so I studied economics at Durham, I failed my Cambridge interview as an undergrad. I was
1: not good enough on on the
0: miners' strike of the 80s in Thatcher and Scardel. I knew marginal returns, marginal gains, supply and demand, and all the classic things that you learn in the textbook, but I hadn't done a extensive enough outside reading so rightly it was not accepted at, at Cambridge uh, so I went to Durham had the best time ever uh, left Durham with a 2-1 in economics went to work in the city for HSBC started in uh, foreign exchange and ended up in futures and had the best time ever on open outcry trading floor um, and I've always been interested in learning something new every day uh, and today, weirdly enough, I learnt about using a chronometer to accurately measure your longitude, which sailors had always had a problem with. After the Isles of Scilly disaster, where two thousand British sailors lost their lives back in the seventeenth century, and the challenge was set um, by, I think, was it was it His Majesty the King or the the, the, the government of the early eighteenth century that said we'll offer. Um, a prize of the equivalent of three million pounds nowadays for anyone who could fix it, and Captain Cook wouldn't have made it to Australia apart from a Yorkshire carpenter whose um, name has just slipped my mind. Might be Johnson. Um, I can tell you exactly who it is because I've just been. But it's all part of uh, how I how I how I like to operate. Uh, mm. John Harrison is the Yorkshire carpenter who used a chronometer. So. There you go, Uh, my mum was a maths teacher, my dad was a land economist at Cambridge. Uh, My brother went to Cambridge, my sister went to Cambridge. We played cards, we read books. Uh, We weren't anoraks or badges, but we just enjoyed Mm. using using the little grey cells. So uh, having learned how to use my little grey cells, I then had to use them quite extensively playing rugby because I was the slowest, skinniest, weakest guy on the pitch. So you got to find a different way to get from A to B. If that's if that's your limitations, it's uh, I'm certainly not talking about myself in the third person. But if I can play for England, anyone can. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I make Mr Bean look like Hercules. Uh, I run a 15 second hundred meters, and yet I played in the in the, in the centres. So um, don't take no. Mm. Uh, if you don't get picked, keep turning it up. Uh, and keep finding different ways to solve the same problem Um, one of the great lateral thinkers Edward De Bono passed away last week Um, and you just got to look at things through a different lens and uh, you can be damn sure that others won't be and and if you can find a point of difference then you become extremely important to a team
1: there must be some times you know as you're developing because I suppose it's well, not easy enough, but, you know, it's, it's a bit easier to look back on it and go, you know, I, I did find all these kind of ways around. When you're in the, the heat of that, you know, you are trying to, you push your way through and, you know, uh, you've got all these kind of other bulky chaps that can run uh, much quicker, 100 metres. You know, what are some of the kind of techniques you try to, you know, put in on a day-to-day basis so that you could be trying to, you know, try these new different approaches to, to playing the sport?
0: You know, you got to devour the sport. you got to, I mean, we didn't have, Sky or anything that you could download and record games on. We had the old VHS and Dad would record as many games as possible and i just watch games. I would go to as many sports events as possible. I mean, how how a fast bowler can use the crease to spear in a yorker at the toes was Wakar Yunus and Wazim Akram. Uh, the use of reverse swing, you know, the, the way that Fairbrother and Graham Fowler for the great Lancashire one day side could nerdle a ball around with the bat and find space, watching American football to see in my day players like Joe Thysman, John Riggins of the of Washington, Walter Payton, the movement, the shapes, the use of blockers. You know, I can pick any sport and I would have watched it. And any sport is adaptable to the sport you're playing you can there's a huge transition now or there's a huge crossover between business being taken into sport and sport being taken into business the reality is all that is is just finding out who the best in the world are work out what they do and how they do it and see if you can apply any of that intellectual property to what you're doing and you know what if you can't it's just bloody interesting anyway and if you can, you've had a you've you've had a boost, you, you're doing something others can't do. I mean, the non-negotiable in all this is you have to be the fittest person on the field, or try to be the fittest person on the field. You have to be in control of your skill set, you know, master your core skills. But anyone can master the core skill. And then it's about putting it into practice under pressure, stress testing it, and adapting your skill set, what you've got left and right of you and what you've got in front of you.
1: Interesting. You mentioned there about, um, you know, business and the crossover of business and sport. And I think one of the, one of the great people that brought the right sort of players like yourself together is Clive Woodward. Um, and do you remember the first time that you kind of played under uh, Woodward and, and the kind of presence that he brought to the field?
0: Um, well, he picked me for his first cap, his first international test as coach. And he picked me for his last one. He, he always picked me when I was fit. So we had a great relationship. I never benched for him. Uh, I tell a lie I did in South Africa in 2000, but I was coming back from an injury. So it was my sort of excuse. If I was fit, I was very lucky that he always picked me. Um, I think I just got on well with his wife and, and Lady Jane. It was Lady Jane who picked me. She liked Caro. Caro and I get on like a house on fire. they never going to leave me out because it made for, better, made for a better evening after the game. Um, so... What was great about Woodward was uh, there were loads of coaches under him who were saying, you can't pick him. He's no good. He's slow. Can't tackle. And he went, well, this is what he can do, right? This is what we haven't got in our armoury. He's going to bring that to our armoury. You fix his work-ons. You fix what you think he can't do. Because I'm pretty sure defence is get up off the floor, get in the line, go forward, make a tackle. Right. Teach him that. You can teach anyone that. What he is doing is seeing space, finding space, putting others into space and creating a hatful of tries for either himself or others around him. And um, if we're going to beat the best in the world, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, we've got to score tries.
1: Wow, incredible. He kind of saw that that vision in, and really, really believed in you. That must have been uh, really kind of a confidence booster uh, for yourself. Now, I'm interested in that kind of environment that he did create ultimately for the, uh, the big winning um, World Cup squad. Um, and I only ask this because, you know, part of what we have here, we're, we're running a, a business, we've got 11 of us involved and, you know, trying to operate at the high level, ultimately, you, you know, in, in, you, of course, in business and sport, everyone's trying to operate at, at the highest level. Um, and I know you've got your own business as well. So what are some of the things that you think uh, in the way that we're kind of doing business now uh, that we're missing out on, um, that we should be, you know, bringing into businesses um, to reach that sort of level that, 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 that you guys were able to play at um, in the World Cup squad?
0: Uh, great question. I've just spent the last year writing a book, actually. Uh, speaking to CEOs of BT, Sky, all sorts of Unilever, ITV, uh, to Michael Johnson, uh, Dan Carter, Helen Glover, um, Kate and Helen Richardson-Walsh, from the sporting world, and without any of them sort of saying these exact words, we began to realise that the ability to celebrate difference, forge togetherness, and therefore accelerate the growth of the individual and the collective, were kept appearing like words in a stick of rock. Um, So celebrating difference is understanding different skill sets cognitive diversity uh on a sports field certainly in the business world it's understanding are you looking at all problems with different lenses on which allows the sort of maybe a blurred perspective to snap into focus by understanding that you hadn't been looking at it from the right angle um but forging togetherness is you can call it a code of conduct, a teamship charter, a collective standard of behaviour. I think if you you need a purpose, you need a North Star, you need guiding principles, you need to build your business about around your values, not your opinions. Opinions can change. Opinions can be what you grew up with, but that might just be a product of your environment. Actually, what your values are, the transparency, humility, vulnerability are way more important. So what what uh what's important for the team members and then that ability to accelerate growth is is sort of bringing those two together as a multiplier uh and then using speed and selection uh and other aspects in and around that sort of title to to help your team marginal gains have seismic gains um according to where your business lies on its, on its trajectory, you can have some huge gains on a startup. And as it sort of becomes huge, it's very difficult to then get huge gains, but you must never, perfection. sort of, it's unattainable. Um, I think Vince Lombardi said, but if you chase perfection, you catch excellence. I think the only thing I ever want to be involved with as I get older is a team that wants to be better. And it doesn't have to be an international team or the best business in the world. Uh, but it has to be a team or a business that that wants to improve. And if that's the case, then I'm all in.
1: From writing the book, it sounds really interesting. I'll definitely give it a read uh, when it comes out. What was one of the things that you found from it that you didn't expect um, to find at all?
0: Yeah, so I sort of had it in the back of my mind, but didn't realise perhaps how important it was. And I sort of focus on, we always articulate there's a verb to lead, and I lead well. Or uh, our CEO is a good leader. Um, he's led us through tough times. Uh, actually, I almost think we're missing a trick. And to team should be a verb, as it and is just as important to be a good teammate. To team, you never say. I, he teams well. Mm. We should. You sort of say he's a good teammate. You can get around him, but I actually think there's. It's it's a bit like well being. It's not well being because well being suggests you just are well. It's actually well doing. You have got to do something to be well.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, to be a good team, you've got to team well. You've got to be able to converse with superiors. I'm not going to use the word inferior, but those perhaps below you on the food chain, your horizontal relationships, your vertical relationships, a better way of putting it. The old phrase, isn't it, is sort of walk with paupers and kings and, and be the same human being, how you treat others and those that can't do anything for you. And sort of perhaps throwing too many messages at you, but the act of being generous and of support to the team and those around you. Uh, I think he's was something that was sort of almost like came out of all the voices of all the, the great people we
1: interviewed, like a, like they had a klaxon, as important as uh, leadership. Wow, that's fascinating. And from this, again, I, I just asked kind of for, for my own sake of, of running this organisation and trying to make sure that people can, I suppose, team well and, and be part of such a strong team. Um, What are some of the things you think, uh, again, coming from your experiences within rugby, uh, that a good leader should be doing um, to ensure that people can team well?
0: Surround himself with condescending voices. Condescending is the wrong word. Surround himself with alternative voices, alternative opinions. Uh, Carol Dweck said, if you want to surround yourself with worshippers, go to church. Um, So, Lincoln famously created when he became president, a team of rivals. He put in his, as his closest aides, people who had wanted his job uh, to make sure that he was constantly being questioned. Um, And I think you have to, when you start a new job, when you're in a new job, you have to constantly check, have I just created an echo chamber? Are people just assimilating to me because I'm the boss? Or am I empowering them? to hold me to account and go, oh, you're not acting in the behaviours we discussed and where exactly are you taking us? Uh, often don't ask them why, ask them how. You ask people why, they dig a deeper hole and start throwing bricks at you. They entrench themselves. You ask them how, they've got to explain why they've got there. If they can't explain why they've got there, then maybe they'll be able to understand that they're, they've got a very one-dimensional view of what's going on. Um, so I think those are some of the interesting things that a leader needs to be wary of. Um, the, the, the simplest way of putting it is if you're surrounded by yes, people, mm. um, I think you are heading towards a cliff edge with a load of people following you.
1: Very well said. Um, I'm really interested to hear about the, um, the war room and, uh, your experiences with, with the war room, um, in, in England's rugby.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, that was just a case of, I think it was articulating what I've just said, really, in that uh, I think there'd been an era, well, the previous 100 years of English rugby, was the boss was in charge, and if he didn't like you, he dropped you, and if you didn't like his ideas, he got rid of you. Um, and Woodward realising that actually there's quite a lot of wisdom on the rubber players, they might only be 21 years old, they might only have one cap, but maybe, just maybe they're seeing things that he can't see or feeling things, or feeling things that he can't see. But, but conversely, he's seeing things that we can't feel out there. So it's a joint effort for, um, for those who are, you know, if you're continuing the war analogy, analogy of war room, the, t- the players out on the field are the ones dodging the bullets the generals at the back sort of moving you around. Now, they might be able to see a bigger picture from thirty-six thousand feet, but they haven't got a damn scooby-doo what's going on out there. And they're stra- and then you, therefore, have to make sure your strategy and tactics are marrying up. Uh, and sometimes your tactics will have to change and you have to be pretty stubborn and uh, pretty sure of your position to continue the same strategy be- before you change that. But I think that's what the warring was all about. It was about giving everyone the opportunity to be heard and if you know that's the case then actually the, the quality of your listening goes up because you know you're, you're part of it as opposed to not being listened to and sort of being allowed to speak but actually people are already preparing what they were going to say. Mm. Anyway.
1: Do you do something within your own business now uh, with, with the sporting styles that you do um, to create some sort of environment where you can get feedback cycles like that?
0: Uh, so you got to practice what you preach. I think you got to show a huge amount of vulnerability. You've got to be comfortable with doubt. You know, everyone likes the sort of comfort of group conviction, it goes back to that assimilation. Yeah, yeah, we're all right. We're all right. Yeah, we're all right. Actually, you, I think there's something wrong here. Um, uh, you don't want to sort of cry wolf and you don't want to be an energy sapper, but you got to say it, keep your the truth on your side, and uh. I've absolutely slightly lost track of the question. I think you were saying what we do is practice what you preach, humility. you got to showcase humility. you got to showcase when you're wrong. you got to showcase, I get that, yeah, mea culpa, without feeling like you have to be immortal, invincible, first into the office, last out of the office, always right, actually uh, give a little yourself. That's why Zoom's been great. You get to see in people's homes a little and they've got to, they can't have this facade. You don't believe what's behind the boxes. Mm. Um, so I think when you're, you're, you're leading a team that's trying to create a, a truly empowered group where whether you've been there one day or 15 years, you've still got the same voice, then the leaders, the managers, have to showcase that sort of vulnerability and, and ability to err, but understand that failure isn't final.
1: You mentioned earlier about dodging the bullets and uh, generals and that sort of thing. It reminded me that you uh, trained, uh, you know, did some stuff with the Royal Marines uh, in the build up for um, the World Cup. So I'm interested to know um, kind of how that experience uh, benefited you on the field, but then also how it went on to benefit you in um, the stuff that you do now as well.
0: I think one of the most important things is, uh, I think the passing out process for the Royal Marines is nine months. I think others are shorter and you sort of ask them why it's nine months, and it's things are just beginning to stick. Repetition, 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 repetition under stress test, stress test, stress test. Right, they become stuck in your muscle memory, uh, so well drilled. And it doesn't mean they're stuck in their ways. It doesn't mean they have the perfect practice. They have a really interesting procedure. When you talk to some of the Marines who've seen combat, that they, you know, the debriefs they do a sort of hot on a cold debrief. Hot debrief straight away. What are the emotions like? What are you feeling right now? Then a cold debrief. Okay, what actually happened? And they sort of work out from that things that need to be fed back into the training loop, and then that goes into the training loop. And the new recruits who've got nine months. this is now slightly changed, slightly altered. But it's always built on small tweaks, uh, but uh, unforgiving chase of collective teamwork under pressure of reacting the same way when a bullet flies past you and doing the simple things really well at high speed, which allows you to get set early and be ready for the next stage. Um, and that's what we've sort of took away that reinventing the wheel isn't needed, that technology can be a sort of force multiplier, but don't rely on sports science still has to be an element. And, but if you're, if you really want to be able to trust your gut, then you have to do it from a foundation of total control of your basics. Because otherwise, saying I can throw, saying, you know, if we talk rugby, for example, seeing a bloke in space, 25 yards away, left to right, and you, that's a perfect, I'll throw throw a Charlie Hodgson left-hand spin, I'll have a Marcus Smith left-hand spin pass over the top, and it sort of loops up in the air and gets intercepted. You go, why did you do that? Oh, it was on. Yeah, but you're not good enough to make that pass. So, understanding risk reward uh, and making sure that you want to be in a position of control of your skills that when the opportunity arises, you can take it.
1: Very interesting. Have you got any kind of players um, that you played with it within England Rugby um, that represented that so well and were able to really nail the basics um, to then go on and have the, you know, make the little um, fun tweaks that they, they want to do in their game?
0: I'll give you three guesses. Wilkinson. Well, you got it in one. (laughs) There was a load of them. Jason Robinson, unbelievable. But Wilco was the obvious one. Yeah. Uh, Insatiable desire for for knowledge, for improvement, for knowing that his technique would stand up under pressure. Drill, 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 kick, kick, kick. Johnny wasn't... Johnny wasn't like... uh, thinking of in football now, Who's, who threads D- David Silva, Kevin De Bruyne. Johnny, Johnny wasn't one of them. Um, Johnny was much more of a Kante. A whole, a Fernandinho holding midfield. He's had the number 10 on the jersey. It sounds like he should be our Harry Kane. And he took the drop, wheel, so he should be our Harry Kane. But actually what, what Johnny did was just made the team tick stood in the middle and did the basics absolutely brilliantly. And then, of course, because he's the set-piece set specialist, we want to compare him to David Beckham. Uh, but He's about as far away from David Beckham as you could possibly hope to find. He just wanted to get on with it and keep his head down and and and, and do what he did well. Just, but the importance of kicking in rugby made him, and kicking for points, sort of stood him out as this flamboyant flair player, actually... What Wilkinson was just so good at was at 300 miles an hour. He would do the little things really
1: well all the time. Well, no, I, I really, um, I think I listened to a podcast um, where Johnny Wilkinson was talking. It's so interesting how he's always got that kind of desire to, to push on and, and, and always get the best out of himself. Did you ever find that, because I imagine you probably had the same, you know, just speaking about the kind of growth mindset. Um, Johnny Wilkinson certainly opened up a lot about kind of his mental health and, and the effect that that had on him. Did you ever feel that you know constantly trying to drive further and do more had that kind of toll on you as well yeah it's brutal
0: uh, fear of failure but there's a there's a trade-off to be had that you've got to have that fear you've got to have that I truly believe you, you you've got to have that self-doubt somewhere that you I might get beaten on Saturday right I need to train I need to train harder I need to Look after myself. I need to deliver myself to the pitch in the best possible shape as I can. I need to be in control. What are the calls? Do I know all the calls? And that sort of drive and fear allows you then to express yourself on a Saturday. But it's debilitating. It's hard work. For those who really have that to an nth degree, the final whistle goes on one game and it doesn't matter what you've won. And Johnny spoke with this, He's already worried about, and that's what sport does to you. You rarely go mm, pat on the back. And it's like, what's next? I'll be judged on my next game. I'm told you're only as good as your last game. So it's 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 what it's the the utopia that very few people can achieve, which is being a high level sportsman who's completely content in life, and happy, and. I love a sportswoman as well, of course. Sorry, that's a poor a sports person um, that can train, play, go home, relax, not worry about it, compartmentalize it. Next one, and clearly there are some, but I didn't know many in our rugby team.
1: When you finished your professional career within rugby, um, you spoke earlier about kind of having that north star that you're aiming towards, and you know having something that you can you know always work towards on a daily basis. Did did you find um, kind of a, a slight lack of purposeful purposefulness uh, when you when you finish that just, word. I don't know. I've probably just made it up.
0: Yeah, I think you have. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I love it. Purposefulness. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe there is a word, purposefulness, but you just couldn't say it. Yeah, I, I think probably. <laughs> okay, well, agree. Um, uh, you know, we had this phrase, removing luck, and sometimes I go, maybe, maybe I had a bit of luck, you know, sky, telegraph, and that sort of stuff, but. As I get older, I feel more confident in myself to be able to say I didn't have any luck at all. i just worked really hard. When it came to Sky and the Daily Telegraph, and I knew I was going to be in the studio, I watched every single game of rugby the week before. And I went two weeks before that if it was a team that I hadn't seen much of. And in I've been working for Sky since 2005. That's 17 years, 16 years. There's 22 rounds of the league each year, six games. That's 132. Two semifinals and a final, 135. In 16 years, there won't be one of those games that I haven't seen. Now, I might not have watched all of them, like back end of the season Worcester versus Newcastle. Now, when there's nothing on it, I might just skim through it. But uh, I've written a million and a half words at Telegraph and three books. You got to stay on top of your subject matter. You got to. Then I shifted into artificial intelligence and I work for an organization called Affinity sort of stuck in the weeds at the moment, trying to understand some of the brains of some of our data scientists and advanced analytics and realise I've got to let that be if I try and I'll drive myself to an early grave. I've got to understand I'm far more on the sales side uh, and there needs to be an understanding of what we do and how we do and how we operate in our business model and the, the sales pitch. It's trying to aug- augment our AI mm. by being... Um, able to converse and and get their AI people in with our AI people, and then 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 things happen. And so, beginning to understand my role within the organisation, and the good people is to be able to delegate and understand you can't be all things to all people. Um, so, yeah, I certainly think five or six years ago, seven or eight years ago, I, was, oh, I had a bit of luck with Sky, and actually I look back on it and go, no, no, I didn't have any luck at all. Trust me. People say what what watching six games of rugby every week, and I tend to do it on. I used to do it on a Wednesday, and now I do it on a Monday. Sounds amazing. Oh, you lucky thing. There's some proper crap rugby. Not uh, but you're trying to work out what's changing, what's evolving in the game, what's happening to decoy runners, uh, what are experts doing in the red zone, how are Bristol finding space, um, what what have Quinns thrown away to be able to suddenly play like that? Uh, Because if you're going to sit there on TV and tell people how it's done, you can't just rely on what you did 20 years ago. It's a totally different game. Now, there's an understanding of what the psyche is required and, and the basics that are required, but patterns change, strategies change, tactics change, styles change, and... If people are going to keep employing you, which I'm very proud of at the Telegraph, writing my own articles for 20 years. When you think about all I'm describing is a game of rugby, and I've been writing 60 articles a year for 20 years, there's only so many ways you can pass a ball and make a tackle. You've got you've got to be you've got to be on it. And that's everyone's responsibility and role within an organization. What is it that you do for an organization? Look at the bigger picture, you know, using your super strength but make sure you're totally on top of your super strength. Otherwise you begin to lose the credibility of, of your position within the organisation. And mm. whether it's business or sport, if your name is associated with the word doubt, you is a dead duck.
1: Now we're, we're all about kind of young people here, a lot of students listening and people that are kind of entering. Yeah, job. In the job market, what, <laughs> what I'm really interested to get your take on is um, social media, um, and you, you know, loads of people now use social media. It wasn't around, you know, when you were growing up and everything. Um, but it's easy. How do you know how old I am? How
0: very ageist of you! I was looking at there the original social there. media. Would you actually went and talk to a girl <laughs> or a boy
1: and said hello? You didn't
0: <laughs> swipe left or swipe right. Well, you know, don't use just because it's new doesn't mean it's better.
1: Yeah, well, I, I know it's, it's all um, it's all, all very new and uh, very easy now. Um, but, the, you know, this is what I kind of want to come on to that, you know, things now are very easy. You know, it's easy to kind of get this kind of gratification from things you do on your phone. And it's easy to see success, you know, very achievable things like Love Island that instantly jump people up. So what's your kind of take on social media um, and how perhaps our generation should be looking to use it in the right way?
0: It's a bit like the Luddites, though. You know, they, you can't smash up the weaving machines. They're here. They're coming. Mm. You got to find a different way to look at it and put a different perspective on it. And the, the danger is, I mean, that that's a, such a vast subject that no one's really solved the question. My view on it, or I'll I'll pick the element of it that I view is important. Is I think you can hear and read and listen to so many amazing stories out there, if you choose to follow the right people, um, you can use it as such an educational tool and you can use it as a real platform. But there are so many different ways to get it wrong. And we don't, you know, the day day isn't long enough to go into how many different ways you can get it wrong. I think you just have to remember once it's out there, you better be damn sure you wanted what's out there to be out there because it's staying out there. You know, one of the final things we sort of finished with in the book is one of the things, no matter what's going on in your life, no one can ever take away from you is how you decide to treat other people. For some of the instances that everyone, no one goes through their life without tragedy, and some of the things that we've had in our life, I hope has made me a kinder person. Um, I know that me 30 years ago was probably very selfish, probably arrogant. Uh, desperate you know international sportsman thought i was immortal pleasing thank yous probably fell down the list and part of me looks back on it with a slight with a level of embarrassment but that level of selfishness and was probably some fortunately sometimes what's required to get you to the top I'm trying not to make excuses all I just have. I'm just trying to contextualize what I'm saying that whatever's gone Before doesn't mean you can't make a stand now and and go, actually, I'm going to leave people... Every time I come into contact with people, I'm going to leave them feeling better about themselves. Now, I'm not going to tell them they're the world's best thing since sliced bread because I'm filling them with pipe dreams. Everyone's got something going for them uh, and everyone's doing something well and everyone's contributing in some way. And I'd much rather focus now uh, on positive feedback, rigorous feedback, high cadence feedback, but with the pursuit of making those in and around you better.
1: Brilliant, brilliant way to um, wrap things off here, uh, Will. Firstly, thank you very much for coming on. And secondly, as I hopefully you're aware of the uh, two truths and one lie um, right. at the end of each podcast. So if you want to say three statements, if you've got them ready, um, and we'll have a guess.
0: I was the national triple jump champion. I got a first in economics from Durham University and I captained Lancashire under-19s cricket.
1: So there we go. Two truths and a lie from Will Greenwood. What an absolute honour to have him on our podcast. Now, if you're watching the Lions this weekend, you'll likely see him presenting for Sky Sports and also definitely watch out for the release of his book coming soon. That's it for Season 4, Episode 1 of the Armigo Podcast. We'll see you again next week.